0: All right, folks, pleased to be joined this time on the podcast by Congressman Jimmy Duncan. Congressman Duncan spent over 20 years in Washington representing Tennessee's 2nd Congressional District. He took over the seat his father had held in the House of Representatives since 1964. During his time in the House, Congressman Duncan made a name for himself as a fiscal conservative, serving on the House Committee of Transportation and Infrastructure, as well as the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. He's well-known for being one of the few Republicans to oppose the 2003 war in Iraq, which he'll discuss in detail here. And like many, he's not a big fan of the current political climate of animosity that we see in Washington today. He's now concentrating on enjoying retirement and time with his family. Here's my conversation with Jimmy Duncan. Congressman Duncan, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Russell. It's an honor to be here. On your show with you. Well, the the honors all mine. I, I understand that you have some more free time now here this year. <laughs> yes, Is, uh, you were you ended in January, I think, of 2019, and yeah. we're re- recording this at the last day, September of uh, 2019. Yes, I spent 30 years uh, in Congress, uh, and I
1: always felt very lucky to have my job. It was a great privilege uh, to serve there, but uh, uh, it also. Uh, was not hard for me to come home because I never did regard Washington as home I always uh, I told my wife when I first went there that I wanted our kids to be raised in Tennessee and they visited a lot but I never spent one minute up there that I didn't have to I always caught the first plane home and you know this uh, all my friends were here this was always home and so it's not been a real hard adjustment for me anything you miss about being up there Well, uh, I've loved every job I ever had at the time I had it. I was a groundskeeper at a baseball park for a dollar an hour when I was 15, and then I became a – I loved that. I was a bag boy at A&P when I turned 16, and I I thought about making my career with A&P. And then my first two years at UT, I became a salesman at Sears, and I wore a suit and tie. I was very proud of that job, and I thought about making my career with Sears. Then when, uh, when I, was, uh, I was majoring in journalism at a time when very few people majored in that, and so I became a newspaper reporter on our morning daily newspaper, and I thought that was a cool job. I thought about making my career at that. But uh, I ended up uh, following through with my plans to go to law school, and I became a lawyer and a judge, and I had a fascinating career, 16 years as a lawyer and a judge before I went to Congress. And so uh, uh, I miss... Uh, um, you know, I miss seeing some of the people that I worked so closely with, but one thing I can tell you, I don't miss is going to the airports twice a week. <laughs> I got my, I got my fill of that.
0: Yeah. The suitcase was well worn by, by the time you got done, huh?
1: Well, I told my sons one day, I said, you know, almost every job seems like it has either no travel or way too much travel. And so, uh, you know, I accepted it as part of the job, but, uh, I don't miss that, uh,
0: that part. Now you're, uh, I, I don't know if born into politics is the right term, but, uh, certainly your father had a distinguished career. He was in Congress for over 20 years. And before that he was mayor of Knoxville. So, uh, you were, you were around the political world from a very early age. What was it like growing up in Knoxville, the mayor's son?
1: Well, I, uh, I was very, very proud of my dad. I, uh, uh my dad hitchhiked into Knoxville with $5 in his pocket to go to UT and 20 years later was elected mayor and six years after that elected to Congress. And uh, my grandparents had 10 kids in an outhouse and not much more. And so uh, they had a nice article in the Knoxville News Sentinel about eight or nine years ago about me and my dad. And uh, I described him as the kindest, sweetest, toughest, hardest working man I ever knew. And I got the nicest letter, handwritten letter from Peyton Manning about that. He said he had flown out in Knoxville the day that article was in the paper. And he said he could tell from that article I had the same kind of relationship with my dad that he has with his dad. And um, so, uh, yes, I I really, um, you know, I uh, really looked up to my dad. And then as I got older, I would uh, drive him a lot of places and uh, you know, I guess slowly politics got into my blood, and so when I was elected to Congress, it was like a dream come true for me.
0: And I know American politics have, have changed a lot over the years. Did, was that something that was talked about at the dinner table growing up? Was, you know, what was going on, whether it was in the city or in the country at large?
1: Yes, we, I mean, we talked about that uh, quite a bit, and, and uh, my mother was from Iowa, and she came from a staunchly Republican family in Iowa, so I got it from both uh, sides. In fact, um, my wife, my mother was not a weepy woman, but the uh, first time I saw her cry, uh, I remember the shock of it. Uh, he, she saw Richard Nixon conceding the 1960 election, and Pat Nixon started crying, and my mother started crying. <laughs> so, um, but um, uh, they— they didn't push me to my, my parents didn't push me to go into politics. They pushed me to work hard. Uh, they, uh, they didn't let us sleep late. Um, they wanted us working and I liked working. I liked earning money. And so, um, I was proud that I was able to pay almost all my expenses through, through, uh, uh, UT and through George Washington law school and, uh, from various jobs that I had. And, um, uh Ray Hill, who writes a column for the Focus here in town, he told me three or four years ago, he said, you won the lottery with parents. And I'd never thought of it that way, but I really believe it that I did.
0: One thing I found interesting in, in reading about your dad was he he was mayor here in the early 1960s uh, during the civil rights movement. And he was really instrumental in encouraging some downtown businesses to integrate their public services like lunch counters and, and things like that, and that helped Knoxville avoid some of the more violent incidents that you saw in other southern cities at that time. What do you what do you remember about that time and how your father dealt well, with those issues?
1: I remember it well. We, uh, Daddy used to get about 95% of the black vote in the three races for mayor that he ran in, and he had a wonderful relationship with the black community. In fact, I can remember uh, even in the mid-'50s, when I probably was six or seven or eight years old, going with him when he spoke to uh, some black churches. And I remember it because uh, we uh, are lifelong Presbyterians, and if we made any noise in church, we got punched. But uh, (laughs) going to a church where grown men were shouting out uh, amen and so forth, uh, I remember it shocked me. But uh, um, Daddy, as a young lawyer, started uh, uh knox federal savings loan association and that was the first bank in this area that first that really made home loans to a lot of uh, black families and uh, he um, he um, really just led the uh, peaceful integration of uh, knoxville i remember ed freeman an old black lawyer in knoxville who told me so proudly that uh, My dad, in the early 1950s, took him around and introduced him to the courts because there used to be a tradition that when a new lawyer would start out, they had to get another lawyer to introduce him to the kind of a formal little Mm -hmm. thing to the various courts. But uh, uh, my dad was always a a, a very conservative Republican, but some people misunderstand about that. Conservatism, if I had to use one word, it, it would be about freedom. I would say freedom and uh, so my dad uh, uh was a conservative who believed in treating uh, all people well and uh, and he did and uh, so his his um, black voter african american vote went way down when he started running as a republican he was al- he was always a republican but in the mayor's elections you don't you don't run on a party ticket sure but even even at that he and it continued with me uh we've always gotten the highest b- black vote by far of any Republican in the country. I would get to i mean if the four times I just had independence run against me, I got eighty five to ninety percent of the black vote but uh when I had a Democrat name on the ballot, I would fall off to forty four to fifty two percent but that's that that was in precincts where Bush and McCain were getting like two percent, so I always mm. felt real good about that and i and later on, when I was a lawyer, I, re- I was the lawyer for the largest black church in Knoxville and had a lot of African-American clients, and that helped me in my elections, too. Uh,
0: I also read that your your father was a co-owner at one time of the the Smokies baseball team here in Knoxville? Yes. And- in fact, I think that's the biggest uh, biggest mistake that uh,
1: <laughs> we ever made because uh, <laughs> my dad, as a young lawyer, put together a group uh, um got four other men to go with him and they uh uh they bought uh, the team in Montgomery in 1956 and moved it to Knoxville. My dad became president and uh he stayed on as president of the team for many years and uh, even while he was in Congress and and uh, served a while as president of the league of the Southern uh, League. Yes. Okay. Uh, in fact, he was offered uh, in 1959, they offered him the full-time job uh, as um, the, um, you know, the uh, uh, the secretary or whatever it was the full-time job running the league. But and my brother and I were disappointed they didn't take it. <laughs> but um, he had other plans, and that was later that year was when he was first elected as mayor. But he, there's an interesting story about that. Uh, the team in Montgomery was an independent team. And had players from all the different, several different big league clubs. Well, the, after they bought the team, my dad asked the people in Montgomery for advice, and they didn't like the manager, a man named Dick Bertel. And they said you could save some money. The oldest player on the team was a 23 year old second baseman named Earl Weaver. And they said <laughs> you, you could uh, make him the playing manager and save some money. And so. Uh, in the off-season, my dad named Earl Weaver as the manager, and then uh, in the off-season at Host Neals Country Club on the terrace, they, uh, uh, Daddy uh, signed an agreement with Harry Dalton, who was the farm director for the Orioles, and the thing that clinched it, he told him, he said... Uh, We'll do this if you'll take her a weaver off her hands. And <laughs> was he
0: was he already making a reputation for himself as a uh, a troublemaker? Well, and,
1: I don't know, but they uh, but uh, they made him the uh, manager of their rookie league team in Fitzgerald, Georgia,
0: and then yeah. he just the rest is history. He worked his way on up. Uh, yeah. I, I, I I don't I don't remember him, but I, I know the um, stories about him getting thrown out of games oh, are pretty did. legendary. <laughs> yeah. he really knew how to get tossed. Yeah, I think he <laughs> set the record, but, probably. No doubt, and you were a bat boy and the PA announcer for a little bit uh, during this time. Did you ever give any thought to a career in sports or broadcasting? Well, I was, a, uh, I was a bat. The
1: I, I had I had come from a game one night in in, uh, in 1958 from my little league team, and the uh, bat boy of the visiting team fell and broke his arm running to get a stretcher for a pitcher who had been hit in the head, and they needed somebody to take over as bat boy immediately, and I happened to be there in uniform. <laughs> and so uh, I did it the first season and a half for free and the next four for a $1.50 a game. So I think I really I, – I think I've been a bat boy longer – or was a bat boy longer than almost anybody. I think I should be in Cooperstown. but uh, This is over at old Bill Meyer Stadium? Yes, and uh, about 20 years ago, or no, it wouldn't be that long, probably 15 years ago, uh, Pete Rose spoke at a Chamber of Commerce dinner in, in Athens, and I sat next to him at the head table, and I told him I had been bat boy for the Knoxville Smokies when he played for the Macon Peaches, and I probably was 12 or 13 at the time, but when he got up to speak, the first thing he said, he said, Congressman Duncan, he said, I wish you were a senator, but he said, but you were nine years old when I played at Macon. He said, what the hell happened to you? He said, I thought I was sitting next to Colonel Sanders up there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, uh, yeah, he, he was a character, is a character yeah. to, this, to this day, I understand. Um, okay, so you graduated from UT in, in 1969. Right, uh, You went to law school, practiced here in, in East Tennessee. Were you politically involved at that time? In the, uh, the I guess this is the 1970s?
1: Yes, I was active in all the Republican um, campaigns, not only for my dad, but for Howard Baker, and and uh, well, I worked two summers in the Nixon for President campaign in '67 and '68 up in Washington. Uh, they wanted me to work full time the in '68 in the fall campaign, but I wanted to come back and finish school, so I did that. But uh, um, and then the. Um, um I got in a controversy. As soon as I got back in the fall of 68, um, somebody anonymously sent me the minutes of the Issues Committee meeting, and they um, were going to invite in all these left-wing speakers, Tom Hayden, Jane Fonda's husband, Angela Davis, a famous communist. And they had a thing there and said poss- possible conservative speakers, and it said, Ku Klux Klan member, John Birch Society member, Kaz Walker. And it made me so mad, I wrote a column about that, listing about 15 very respectable conservative speakers they could invite in. I had been the token conservative columnist writing a weekly column for the Daily Beacon the year before. Tom Gillum, the left-wing editor of the paper, Refused to print that column. He said uh, my column was on national issues and that was a local campus thing. So I took it down to the Knoxville Journal and showed it to the editor. And he's, or he told him, I told him about it. And he said, Well, bring it down. He said, I think it's probably something more for the for UT, but he said, If I like it, I'll, I might run it next week. That was a Friday morning. The next day on a football Saturday when their circulation went up from 77,000 to 82,000. he ran on the front page, or at least started on the front page. The editor of the Beacon got so mad, he said, <laughs> I'm cutting your column down to once every other week. I'm take, I'm removing you as news editor, and I'm taking you off the SGA beat. I said, no, you're not, because I quit. And I was working for free anyway for the Beacon. So then I went down and told the editor of the, Be- of the journal what they'd done. He gave me a full-time job as a newspaper reporter for the Knoxville Journal, which All I right. did in my— 68 and 69 in my senior year at uh, ut then i went to law school at george washington and uh, i used to i i, I said uh, i was the only one in the whole law school that spoke without an accent so i stood <laughs> out when i got called on
0: so you were uh exposed to some of the i want to say uh dirty tricks but uh the uh, bare knuckled politics style in the in the media from from an old age and and or from an early age and and you did not shy away from that.
1: Well, I saw early on that people on the left really don't believe in free speech uh, uh, like uh, conservatives do.
0: Did um did y- you see folks coming I mean your dad is in is Congress at, at this time did uh would, what was it like to see people be critical of your father at a young age? Did that occur?
1: Well, sure. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, I could. It it, uh, it occurred my first day at UT, uh, but um, that's another story. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, sure, I got that, and and um, you know, I didn't like it, but um, but that's in politics. You you've got to roll with the punches
0: sometimes. Different set of pressures being congressman's son. Well yes it's i mean
1: uh, uh it you know i've i've worshipped my dad i mean i really did mm-hmm. and and so uh um you know i there there's politics politics can get really mean sometimes, and that's i mean it's just the way it is and so it's just it's just part of it but uh i knew uh, um I knew down deep inside that my dad was a wonderful man and uh, no matter what people said and, and actually I, I had a lot more people tell me good things about my dad than, than anything bad. I mean, it's just, so I was, uh, being, uh, being, uh, John Duncan's son was, uh, uh, a lot. Uh, there was, uh, it was, uh, Ninety ninety five percent good, five percent
0: bad. Maybe it seems like uh politics are especially mean today. Do you do you feel like it's gotten worse, or is it just covered more in the media now?
1: No, I think there is more hatred in politics today than any time. You know, p- p- people said the Civil War was a, a a worse time, and it was it was as far as killings. But uh, even during the Civil War, a lot of the people fighting for the Union didn't hate the people who were fighting for the Confederacy, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes they were cousins or relatives even fighting each other Now, but I think what it is, the, uh, liberalism to me is a philosophy of arrogance, and I think these uh, too many people on the left they just can't believe that people would question them in any way. I mean, it's a. I say it's a philosophy of arrogance because it, uh, liberalism is, is really says to people, "I can run your life for you and spend your money for you better than you can." Mm. Conservatism, conservatives believe just the opposite that uh, uh, that individual people can do those things better than the government can do it for them. So um, anyway, they they, I, I couldn't. I I was I couldn't believe it when. Uh, Republican members of Congress a couple of years ago had to start getting uh, police escorts to get in, uh, get yeah. out of uh, town meetings. And, uh, of course, now the hatred for President Trump has gone beyond anything that uh, I think we've ever seen. I mean, there's always been competition and, you know, I guess some hatred in politics, but nothing, nothing <coughs> like
0: now so you and you you were a a state court judge too that was that your your last job before you went to congress yes i was a i was a criminal court judge in knoxville and
1: i tried the attempted murder of james earl ray my court was the only court he ever testified in i had a lot of big big cases okay back in those days um jury trials have almost become a thing of the past now but but uh uh, my first year as judge, we tried seventy-eight jury trials in my court alone, and five non-jury trials. Of course, most trials back then were just one-day deals. But um, it, it, when I was in practice, and then when I was a judge, it was just a,
0: a lot of jury trials in both civil and criminal. When, when you were a judge, did uh, I keep asking you? Did you have political ambitions at the time? But uh, did you know that's? Did you feel like that's something that? you could do uh for the rest of your life and have that be your career or did you were you beginning to think at all about uh you know political ambitions well i uh
1: sure i thought a lot of times about staying on as judge and uh and i have said many times i guess if i would had any any sense i would have stayed <laughs> on as judge because it had a much better pension than it, than going to congress much to people's um surprise but um uh and i w- and it was a job that um i got really high ratings from the bar association and so i, I um you know and i um i and i really in, enjoyed uh, as I said, I've loved every job I ever had the time I had it. I had a fascinating law practice, had a fascinating judgeship, but I had the politics in my blood too bad, and I just uh, uh, um, wanted to go to Congress, and fortunately it worked out for
0: me. So did, you took over your father's seat after he passed away?
1: Yes, he he had cancer, and uh, uh, he was trying to hold on because— uh, Back in those years, a judge's pension didn't vest until you had been in eight years, and I had I had been in seven, almost seven and a half. Uh, but uh, uh, his cancer got too bad, and so I, in the spring of '88, I started running for Congress. And then in the late June of '88, uh, he passed away, and and so. Um, uh, I'm really, uh, I really wish that he could have lived long enough to uh, see me. I got to. Uh, my dad took. There were so few Republicans elected to Congress in 1964, my dad's first year. There weren't enough seats on the Democratic side for all the Democrats, but the the very few new Republican members got to take whoever they wanted to down on the floor. And so my dad took me and my brother. And my grandfather from Iowa went down on the floor with him when he was first sworn in. Mm-hmm. And I would have really liked to have been able to take my dad on mm-hmm. the floor with me when I got sworn in, but
0: it didn't work out. You must have felt uniquely prepared to, to, to go to Washington after having seen your father serve up close. And uh, you must have had a good idea of, of what you were getting into. What was it like for you to go to Washington? Um. I was asked by
1: uh, some of the other new Republicans that year to give them a tour of the Capitol. <laughs> so I didn't know a little something about it. I had uh, uh, And I I had wanted to go to law school up there because I'd been to school all my life in Knoxville. And I had a free place to stay in Washington. So I wanted to go to law school up there, which I did. But I always knew I was going to come back here to practice. So... I think I had a a pretty good idea about uh, what it was like, uh, but um, I had uh, I had a tobacco lobbyist the first year I was in Washington who told me he said you know what we ca- called your dad and Dan Roskinkowski? he said we called him the odd couple because they were as different as night and day but said your dad was the only man we ever knew who could get Dan Rostenkowski to do everything he wanted him to do. And Dan Rostenkowski was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and was a very powerful man at that time. And then that first year, a lawyer from Knoxville wanted me to work out for him to play golf at Burning Tree Country Club. So I was able to do that, and it was a cold October day. And the only other people that we saw on the course that day were Tip O'Neill, and a former Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania named Fred Rooney, who I, I I had never met. And when Fred Rooney found out who I was, he he told me, he says, "Your dad was the only man I ever knew who'd never had an enemy in this town," which I thought was a really wow. good, really nice compliment coming from a Democratic congressman about my dad.
0: Sure, no doubt. And uh, what were, you know, your priorities and goals when when you got to Congress? What was sort of the, the platform you ran on back in 88? Um, it uh, it didn't work out too well
1: uh, for me because uh, I came to Congress as a, as a very fiscally conservative person, which I still am. And when I came to Congress, the national debt was uh, about I think it was slightly less than three trillion dollars, and now it's twenty-two trillion. <laughs> so that's why I say it didn't work out. I mean, I lost. Uh, I guess. I, I guess you could say I lost most of the votes that I cast in in my time in Congress. But um, uh, I spoke. I spoke out. Uh, I always. I was brought up. My mother and dad brought us up tight. I always said I'd rather sleep on the floor, or sleep on a bed that's not paid for. And I still feel that way. And I think we made a bad mistake and the country would be much stronger and on much safer grounds if we had not run up the debt that we've run up. So I'm very disappointed by that. I did later on become, much to my surprise, I think, uh, I became a a strongly anti-war Republican. And that put me in a very small minority in my party. But... um, um I felt very strongly and still feel very strongly that, um, that we made a bad mistake uh, g- getting into various wars that are still going on. And I, I opposed all that and, sp- and was very outspoken about that, about uh, those two things.
0: So I, I guess you could say I lost on that front, too. What did you win on? Are there some accomplishments that you look back well, on fondly? Well, I think uh, when
1: I say I lost on it, I really think that uh, that most of the people in the country have come around yeah. to my view on on the uh, uh, on the interventionism. So, so I'm pleased about that, and uh, um, and I don't feel bad about speaking out so much on the. Uh, fiscal end of it. I mean, I remember Admiral Mike Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, from 2007 to 2011, he testified several times. He said uh, the greatest threat to our national security was our national debt. Um, So what I feel best about, that this job gave me a chance to help out many thousands of people, mostly in very small ways that... uh, but that were important to them. And so I was able to help out a lot of people and I was able to speak out on a lot of national and international issues that I felt very strongly about and I still am speaking out on those issues but uh um I you know I didn't I didn't sit back just because
0: I was uh, losing a lot of those votes. Was your opposition to the war in Iraq mostly to do with the the cost that it would inevitably Ring up, or was it more to do with the fact that the the nine eleven attackers were not Iraqi? It was a
1: combination of several things those those that you've just mentioned. Um, But um, uh, you know, I heard I heard all these. uh, I I voted for the first Gulf War in ninety one because I'd gone to all these briefings and I heard all these things about how Saddam Hussein was the new Hitler and so forth. And then I saw, and they told about his elite troops, I saw those same elite troops surrendering to CNN camera crews and empty tanks. And I thought then that the threat had been greatly exaggerated. And would, you saw, have,
0: would you have opposed that one too, knowing what you found out? Yes,
1: yes, I would have. But, uh, uh, but then in between the first two Gulf Wars, uh, I was uh, I was speaking to a group one time at the Greenbrier. And I picked up a newspaper, and it said, uh, America's forgotten war. And it said we were still bombing Iraq to enforce a no-flight zone uh, and bombing on average of every fourth day. And we're, we were spending $4 million a day, and most most people in the Congress didn't even know we were still doing that. And then in that same period, I saw where one of our bombs had gone astray, and killed seven little boys who were playing soccer in a field in Iraq. And it told about the anguish of a father whose little son had had his head blown off. And that that made a big impression on me. And so when this, the big Iraq war rolled around, I started reading everything I could get my hands on, and and uh, and. Uh, Fortune magazine had a story that said, uh, uh, said we win. What then? And it said a prolonged war in Iraq would make American soldiers sitting ducks for Islamic terrorists. And there was a national magazine, U.S. News World Report, that said why the rush to war. And so when they found out I was leaning against it, they called me down to the White House and put me in a little secure room with Condoleezza Rice and George Tenet, the head of the CIA, and John McLaughlin, his deputy, and uh, just a, two or three days before, Lawrence Lindsay, the president's main economics advisor, had said a war with Iraq would cost us $200 billion or more. And I asked about that, and Gondolese Rice said, oh, no, it wouldn't cost nearly that much. It'd be 50 or $60 billion, and we'd get some of that back from our allies, which had to be the, most, the worst estimate of anybody in the history of this country. And then... Uh, I asked him. I said, "Well, if you, if, if, uh, I said, if you can get past the fact that conservatives are the main opponents to the U.S. being the policeman of the world and the main critics of the UN and you're going to war to enforce UN resolutions, and if you can, uh, and conservatives are the main opponents to massive foreign aid and huge deficit spending, if you get past all those traditional conservative positions." Do you have any evidence of any imminent threat? And they didn't. And George Tenet confirmed that in his first speech at Georgetown University the day after he left. And I'll tell you, there's nothing conservative about war. Unfortunately, though, because we had pres- and, and President Bush, I was so excited. The second President Bush, I was so excited. I thought he was better than his dad. And he campaigned against nation building and you know um, and and said we needed a more humble foreign policy those were those were big in his campaign and then we got in there and went in exactly the opposite direction because of the neocons who were in the in his administration Mm -hmm. and george will wrote about neocons he said he said they're they're magnificently misnamed. He said they're really the most radical people in this city, meaning Washington.
0: Yeah, and uh, so uh, did you support the uh, American involvement in, in Afghanistan? Because you know, obviously Bush's uh, perspective changed everything after after nine eleven. Um, Everybody in the Congress, including me, including Ron Paul, there was the only one person
1: I think. Uh, um, uh, Barbara Lee of California voted against it, I think. But uh, I voted, I voted to respond to that. But I did not vote for a permanent, forever war. That's what I've been
0: against. And we're still over there.
1: We're still over there. It's ridiculous. And I, I and since then, I voted many times to bring our troops home.
0: So is uh, that's a it's a tough call though because you know the, the Taliban is is still over there and um <laughs> it's it's almost like the the longer you stay the more vested you are in winning completely and and to leave uh, you know they they talk about bringing the Taliban over here to negotiate I think a lot of people kind of took a step back and said you know my goodness you know what have we been doing over there the past uh 18 years if we're only going to come to the table and negotiate with these guys practically everything
1: we've done in the middle east for these last many years has has uh caused us to have more enemies than than friends even 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 William F. Buckley he he wrote uh uh and he wrote just two years after we started the war over there he said if he had known then what he knew now he would have strongly opposed the war and he said uh we reach a point where, um, uh, where it becomes uh, not um, a show of strength, but misapplication of pride.
0: Do you? Or would you be in favor of just pulling out completely at this point? And I sure the, would.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I have, and I've been there for uh, for many years. It seems like the Islamic terrorism, though, is, you know, like you said, it seems like it's getting worse, maybe perhaps due to our involvement, but it is getting worse. And I'm sure that some would say, well, we can't just ignore that. Well, we would, in my opinion,
1: we would have been far better off if we if we had basically ignored it and and told the people in in that in those areas that they've got to settle their own problems there, and, and, and we we should not have become the policemen of the world. In my opinion, I'm very much a. a and a, and a, um, there was a a leading conservative thinker many years ago and said, "War is the health of the state," meaning that it's it leads to an expansion. And I can tell you that I became uh, convinced many years ago that. Uh, these uh, uh, threats have been far less about real threats to our country, but more about money and power. More about money for defense contractors and power and influence for people at the White House. I think, I think what happens, I think when people become president and they're and top people, they see pretty early that they can't control the whole economy. But they can control foreign policy. And so they gravitate as the more they spend, more time they spend in the White House, they usually gravitate more toward foreign policy. And they, Hmm. we have too many people who want to become new Winston Churchill's. Hmm. And I think that's what it's, it's more about. In fact, I endorsed President Trump because I, uh, 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 entirely because I thought he was the, I would have supported any of the 17 people running for the Republican nomination because I am a loyal Republican and I believe that any of them would have been far better than Hillary Clinton. But I endorsed President Trump when he was running because he seemed to me to be the least hawkish of those who were still in the race at that time. What
0: do you think about it now?
1: I think the the same thing. Okay. Um, I I still am endorsing President Trump. I mean, I wish that he had. I wish he had done. I wish he had followed uh, foreign policy more in line with his uh, speeches. And I th- but and I, but I, do think his heart's in the right place. I just uh, um, so, uh, and I like I like uh, most of the things he's done. I like his uh, his tax cuts and his regula- regulatory cuts and, and his appointment of judges and things like that.
0: When you talk about uh fiscal conservatism off obviously was a, a priority of yours throughout your time in congress and and you mentioned how you you feel like that uh d- did not uh at all go the way you had hoped it would back in nineteen eighty eight when you look at um things now and you know a republican <laughs> president republican uh Congress for the first two years anyway um you know, do you worry that voters, when they when they hear conservatives talk about fiscal responsibility, will at some point begin to say, and, I, and they probably already have in in some circles, you don't practice what you preach when you're in there. Sure. In fact, our former governor
1: Bredesen, uh, uh, in one article, said that uh, uh, he would have been amazed when he was in college to to. Uh, uh, Learned that the Democratic Party was the fiscally conservative party, and and uh, that's that was, um, um, I mean that's a false impression. But the, but we gave gave them some of that impression. In fact, I said I liked the tax cuts. What I didn't like was we should have had along with President Trump's tax cuts, we should have cut spending at the same time, drastically cut. That's that's where we went wrong. But I am proud. Of those votes in this way, if everybody in the Congress had voted the way that I did the time that I was there, we wouldn't have hardly any debt. And I think we'd be in much better shape. It's it's just exactly like a family that has bought a $500,000 house when all they could afford was a $100,000 house. When, then when th- their payments are so high, then when repairs need to be made to the house, they can't afford the upkeep or the repairs that they need. in the country's the same way. We would be, we'd be much stronger,
0: but anyway. Do you have a, a prediction for, um, you know, it, it seems like that as the debt continues to skyrocket, the deficit continues to, to be out of whack as well. Um, at some point, it would seem like something's gotta give. If you're in a family, you, you know, yeah, eventually sure. they come and, and take your house. I
1: think the only thing that saved us is that almost every other country in the world is in worse shape than we are, <laughs> and I mean that's it's it's just well that's a scary thought too. Yeah, it's just it's it's ridiculous in my opinion, and 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 then all these people running now for the Democratic nomination. I mean, I can't believe that so so many young people apparently feel good about socialism. I don't know. I don't understand how they can't. Look all over the world, not just at Venezuela, which is the prime example, but I mean, North Korea, Cuba, uh, almost every African nation, uh, all these countries that have followed socialist policies, they've they've ruined the economy, and and I it, it just wor- really worries me. I mean, they the these uh, Democrats running, you know, free this, free that, free everything, and and it it just is not there. In fact. Do you know it shocks students at UT when I tell them it was $90 a quarter when I started there, $270 for the whole, my whole first year. They they raised it a little bit each year. So it was $405 my last year. Nobody got out of school with a debt unless they bought a car or something because you could work part time. I worked full time and part time all through UT. I paid my expenses with no trouble at all and had money left over. And uh, uh, it's, George Washington was really expensive. It was like $800 a semester. (laughs) Now it's like $60,000. It's ridiculous. And anything the federal government subsidizes, costs just explode because you remove the incentives or pressures to hold costs down. Mark Cuban said on uh, uh, the Shark Tank guy said about three years ago, he said, if you want to make college really expensive, make it free. The same thing. (laughs) and pe- not, not enough people understand that the same thing happened on medical care I, in in the mid-90s i went to reception and the doctor who delivered me came and brought my records and i said how much did you charge back then he said i charged 60 dollars for nine months of care and the delivery if they could afford it you know the medical care was cheap and affordable till the federal government got into it in such a big way and then costs just exploded now nobody can afford it except Warren Buffett and Sheldon Adelson, <laughs> people like that.
0: So you you uh, wrapped up your congressional career last year. Um, do you feel like you 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 did it on your own terms? Did you obviously re- retired undefeated in political races? That's got to be a good feeling. Well, I uh, yes, I've. Uh, uh,
1: when you're in politics, you look at the obituaries every day. And I started noticing four or five years ago that half the men were dying younger than me. And then I got hit with a, a prostate cancer diagnosis, and that's what killed my dad and my Uncle Frank and, and uh, it ran in my family. And so, uh, you know, uh, I, I, started, um, I started saying... Uh, uh, former state senator bill owen came to my office in washington about it when it was still just rumored that i might be thinking about retiring and he told me he said he said jimmy you better not retire he said uh, this job has been your whole life he said uh, uh he said look at uh, bear bright said uh, he died six months after he retired he said if you retire you'll die so i said well i, I told me i said well i hope i make it past the first six months and i have <laughs> here you is, are I've made it nine months. You look good now. to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh uh let me tell you, I told my wife when I first went to Washington I wanted our kids to be raised in Tennessee. I didn't spend one minute up there that I didn't have to because I never regarded it as home. I knew too that my constituents liked it better if I was at home because every place I went, gas stations, drug stores, ball games, people would come up to me and ask for help or express opinions. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I was doing my job if I spent more time at home plus my family was here my friends were here and people now a lot of people seem to be surprised they think I miss it uh, they 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 think I miss it a lot more than I do but it I just came home it was not a hard it's not been a hard adjustment for me obviously you can tell from what I've said here today that I still follow it. Sure. I'm still, I'm, I'm speaking Thursday to the downtown Qantas club. I'm still writing articles, occasional articles for obscure conservative publications. <laughs> so, but, uh, who do you write for? Well, I've written articles for the American conservative magazine for Lou Rockwell.com for antiwar.com, uh, uh, the Washington times, uh, um, the American thinker, um, just you know, um, just to get a few things off my chest. My wife though had a major stroke 15 months ago, and mm-hmm. she's still in a wheelchair. And so, uh, it, uh, I think the good Lord uh, knew that it was time for me to come home.
0: And you endorsed uh, Jimmy Matlock here locally for 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 the seat. Of course, Tim Burchett went on to win. Right your old seat what are what are your thoughts on the future there of, of of your old job and it looks like tim could probably hold that seat for a while just as you did
1: well he'll be very popular up there i think because he has he has a, a greater wit he can he he makes he can make people laugh better than anybody that i've ever been around i um, um i feel just fine about what i did because uh um uh, in my time in politics, I've been, I've been involved in many, many campaigns at all levels. And I've supported a lot more winners than losers. But I, I sent my first paycheck as a bag boy at the A&P, $19 and some odd cents, to the Barry Goldwater campaign. And Barry Goldwater got slaughtered. <laughs> Doesn't always – can't win them all. I don't feel bad at all about that. Jimmy Matlock started off with, I think, 4% of the vote in a poll. And he ended up getting like 36%. I'm disappointed uh, uh, because I think, I mean, I know both both men real well. And I think anybody who knew both those men like I did would have supported Jimmy Matlock. So, you know, it's one of those things.
0: What are your thoughts on just, you know, we talk, hit on this a little bit earlier with just the meanness of, of politics these days, but the current state and, and, and the future of, of politics at the national level, um, it seems to be in a uh, a not good place. Uh, but it, it also seems like the media sort of amplifies some of the divisions at times, I think, uh, to some people. Uh, how worried should we be about what happens in Washington? And the, the complete inability of the left and right to um, – not coexist, but uh, certainly to cooperate.
1: It's it's unfortunate, really. And one thing I am pleased about, while I, um, while I had a very consistent conservative uh, record and always spoke out on issues, I always tried to do it in, a, in not in a mean way. And I think I, I, one thing I, I'm pleased about. Uh, uh, I was able to get along with almost everybody up there, both Democrats and Republicans, and I felt like I had to because uh, Democrats had the White House and all the top appointees for sixteen of my thirty years, you know, in the uh, having the White House, and for ten years in 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 the House, and so uh, I think it's a shame, really, because I mean, right now, anyway, they're just they're just totally deadlocked. I mean, nothing. Yeah. They, nothing is is happening and uh, so um, um, of course from a conservative standpoint maybe that's uh, maybe that's that's good I don't you know I don't believe in big government
0: never did but uh, it's sad though that you know um, compromise has become such a four-letter word not you know in politics and American society in general nobody wants to be seen as compromising on their principles but it you know that was something that had to be done when and and used to be done with with regularity. Uh, My opinion was not necessarily a bad thing when when you first got there in in 1988 Democrats and Republicans certainly did not always see eye to eye but could work together at times and get things done i mean there were always battles and always disagreements but
1: if you tried you could get along with uh, just about everybody on both sides and and um, and i knew that uh, i knew that if i wanted to get things done for my district i was going to and for the people in my district i was going to have to uh, work with some democrats every once in a while too Mm -hmm. and so uh that's what I I tried to do. I tried to, I tried to work really hard at my job, no matter who was in control.
0: So, uh, your life is good. Now the, the kids are grown nine grandchildren here. Yes. I always felt very lucky to have my job, but I said for the last
1: several years, the sweetest word I heard in it was not Congressman, it was Papa. <laughs> and I, and I, I have a great time with those grandkids. I make up stories. Uh, I've got one uh, going now about um, Harvey Ring Nose Jones, who wears one brown <laughs> shoe and one black shoe, and who uh, jumped in a parachute off the Empire State Building. And I made up that story because my uh, uh, my six year old and almost four year old grandsons were going to New York City, and so I made up this big story, you know, about this. Uh, <laughs> This anyway, fictitious character yeah. that jumped off the Empire State's yeah, Building, huh? Uh-huh. And they bought it. Well, well, <laughs> well. I think I think maybe the the one who's almost four, maybe. But uh, I was I was driving three of my grandchildren home from our lake house uh, a few months ago, and I said, uh, I I said Harper, that's one of the little girls. I said if if uh, Somebody came to me and told me they would give me $1 billion for you, but I could never see you again. I said, you know what I would tell them? I would tell them no deal. And then I said, in fact, if somebody came and offered me all the money in the world and I could never see you again, I would tell them no deal. And I did that with each of the other two and they really liked it. And, and you know that from your own kids. Really? I've, uh, uh, I've had, uh, you know, I've had to deal with a lot of things. as Everybody does. but um, And I've had a lot of problems over the years. Got some now. But the uh, uh, thing about baseball, I mean, Lou Gehrig said that he was the luckiest man in the world, and he was dying with Lou Gehrig's disease at the age of, I think, 38. And, boy, you know, you think back about that, man, I'm so blessed it's, i don't know it's unbelievable
0: well it's great to hear uh again really appreciate you taking time to do this it's been uh, educational and wish you many more years of uh happiness with the the family the grandkids and welcome back to east tennessee full-time well thank you russell it's been an honor to be with you you've got a much better voice than me and i've <laughs> been i've
1: been fighting an allergy today too so uh But uh, you've been really
0: kind to listen to me for as long as you have. Well, I enjoy listening. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. Congressman Jimmy Duncan, appreciate him taking the time to do that and appreciate certainly all of you for listening. As always, you can support the production of this podcast and future episodes by throwing in a few bucks in the tip jar. All you have to do is log on to Anchor.fm. That's Anchor.fm. Search for the Russell Smith podcast and click on the support this podcast button your support is greatly appreciated all right that's going to do it until next time russell smith here signing off y'all be good